You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. And thank you, Neil. Thank you, Burke. Thank you, David and worship team, Ricky, everybody who participated in the service thus far. And I should say... Participatory worship is one of our core values, but it doesn't mean just the people up here. It means everybody who is in here being engaged, hearing the word, responding to the word in your own heart. Um, This is not a church where people say amen, stuff like that, which is okay. If you feel like saying it, you can always say it. But your participation is vital for the work of the Lord in this place. If this is your first Sunday here, we extend to you a very special welcome at Grace Community Church. Thank you for choosing to be here with us today. Uh, I do want to mention, for those of you who are uh, old-timers or young-timers or whatever, we, we are having that mission fair on October the 2nd. That is going to be an awesome day. We did it several years ago, and people were very responsive. Roy and Margaret Lytle are coming up from Florida. Joy Vonk is coming in from Houston. Um, We'll have several of our missionaries here, so don't miss that. And if you're a home group leader and you have not yet gotten your trifold uh, presentation that you did before, or if you need a new one, uh, we have those in the office, in my office, if you would pick those up after the sermon. So August is Family Worship Month. Uh, Thank you, young ones, for enduring. Thank you, parents, for enduring and wrestling and saying things. Well, you're actually, what you're doing now is going to come up early in the sermon. Have you ever been to a museum or a historical home or trail and you decide not to pay for the tour guide? You'd really like a tour guide But you're like, nah, I'm not going to pay for that. But when you get there, there just happens to be a big group and a tour guide who is speaking very loudly. And can you help it if you overhear? You know, then if you just kind of move where they move and you're you're getting all the benefits of of the tour without having paid for the tour guide. Or, 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 Or perhaps a better analogy for this sermon. Have you ever been to a place like a museum and there's a first grade teacher with all her students there, and there are a couple of chaperones, and you hear as much instruction and correction as you do information, but still you're learning a lot as, as you're going around the museum. It's kind of what it feels like in 1 Corinthians. I mean, we have a vague understanding of the, of the subjects that the Apostle Paul is sharing in his letter uh, with the first century church in Corinth, but as we overhear the first grade teacher setting her troops in order, we learn about the material itself, even when it's delivered as a rebuke. Justin, don't you know that these men and women died for your freedom? Have a little respect here. It's kind of the sense you get in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Today, we're going to listen in as the Apostle Paul explains why he refused to receive financial assistance from the Corinthian church members when he had served amongst them. They didn't pay him. In fact, he refused to be paid by them. Why did he refuse? 
I did it for the sake of the gospel, was his answer. That's the title of today's message, for the sake of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 18. It's, it's connected with last week's message and material in 1 Corinthians 8, which could have been titled, For the Sake of My Brothers and Sisters. And it's also connected with last, I mean, next week's sermon in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 27, where Paul will say, I do what I do for the sake of the lost. He gave up some of his rights. He gave up his right to eat meat that had been offered to idols so that it wouldn't offend the consciences of some of his weaker brothers and sisters, although he had every right to do it before the Lord. The Lord didn't tell him, you can't eat that meat that was butchered in the temple, uh, but it's on sale really, it's a, at a really good price here in the market, but then there's a weaker Christian who is really troubled by that. So I gave up my right to eat and to buy that meat on sale in the market for the sake of my brothers and sisters. Today he's going to say, I refuse support for the sake of the gospel. And that will become clear as we go. Well, hopefully it becomes clear. And then next week he's saying, I give up a whole lot of things so that I can witness in many. Well, at least some will come to Christ, hopefully. Today's text, 1 Corinthians 9 1 to 18. Before we read our text, though, I want to list seven big picture points of interest in the book of 1 Corinthians in case you have entered the museum some 30 to 40 minutes into the presentation. Just to give you a little catch up, this is what's been going on. And even if you've been here all of this time, this will help remind us of what's going on in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and hopefully help us understand what can be a bit of a difficult text right here in the middle of family worship month, wouldn't you know? Uh, so I, I'm going to read this list and then also a much shorter one after the message to try to tie it all together and see what Paul was saying. I, I thought last week's text from 1 Corinthians 8 was fairly complex when you get right down to it. You can get some of the stuff off the top, skim a little bit off the top that's interesting, but when you dig down, it's pretty complex. That was nothing compared to this week's text. It's really a complex text to, to try to make sense of it. So all of this extra, these lists, will hopefully help us make some sense of it. So first thing is this. The Apostle Paul <laughs> wrote this letter to the believers at Corinth Church to address the multiple factions in the group. There were all kinds of divisions. They had divided into groups. And these factions led to confusion, both in doctrine and also in behavior. If you get confused about doctrine, it's most likely going to affect your behavior. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul confronted one issue after another, all of which pointed to the immaturity of the church members there. The very first problem he addressed, and I, I, I thought about this at the time, and I'm still fascinated. The very first thing he addressed was the fact that you have divided up into groups. Some, and, you're, and you're following different preachers. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. Others, I follow the Apostle Peter. And some were so spiritual that they said, well, I follow Jesus. 
You hear a lot of that today, don't you? Man, I ain't going to that church. I ain't going to any church. Me and Jesus, we're good. But I'm not doing the church life. Paul, Paul was addressing all of these different factions. Even those who said, I'm following Jesus. But Jesus doesn't divide. He unites. And so consequently, all kinds of problems ensued because they had divided up into groups. Second, the Corinthians lived in a city that prized knowledge and the ability to promote one's views through rhetoric. <clears throat> what they would do was the various uh, temples that had been built to gods like Zeus and, and Diana in another city, but they, they would... Athena, they would come and stand out in front. And debate was really a big deal. People loved to debate in Corinth. And they would debate in such a way that if you don't agree with me, if you don't see the sense of what I'm saying, then you're stupid. And the, and the, 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 the debates would get louder and louder. And unfortunately... They had brought that right into the church, that same spirit. And people were debating with one another over silly things. <clears throat> it's, it's very much like our day, the internet debates and uh, the rallies, the contentious rallies where both sides show up. If, if the other side's going to be there, you better believe our group's going to be there. And they shout at each other. And unfortunately, that's gotten into the church today here too. So Paul is addressing... That, third, Paul reminded the Corinthians that the message of the cross impresses no one except those who believe. Now, let me just stop right there. The, the message of the cross does not impress people unless they believe. A lot of people say, show me that it's true and I will believe it. God says, no, believe it. And I will show you that it's true. And we spend all this time trying to make the gospel palpable. Now, that doesn't mean we don't adjust our witness. We're going to see that very clearly next week. But you can't make the cross, the message of the cross, appealing to someone who's not willing to hear it. So Paul reminded the Corinthians that all this debate that you've got going on is a waste of time. Since God does not allow men and women to reason their way to him, the emphasis on knowledge apart from the context of godly wisdom made available through the Holy Spirit is not only useless but also harmful to the church body. Now, if you're an English teacher or if you know one, you might want to take a picture of that as an example of how not to write a sentence. I mean, that's a long mouthful of a sentence, but I think you get the point. As we saw in last week's text, the Apostle Paul used many of the rhetorical devices that were prominent in Corinth, and he used them to show the believers how badly they were misusing the good gifts that God had given them, such as knowledge and logic and philosophy. These are not evil in and of themselves. It's just the way that they're used. 
Paul reminded the Corinthians in, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. In other words, if the Spirit of God is not working in you, you're not going to understand the gospel. You're going to reject the gospel. <clears throat> so don't be trying to shout down your fellow brothers and sisters about the way to present the message of the cross. Fourth, the divisions in Corinth church led Paul to address specific areas of church life more thoroughly than he did to the, in some of the other letters that he wrote to churches that were scattered around the Roman Empire. And so therefore, they serve as a valuable guide to many topics of interest to all believers throughout the ages. It, it, it kind of goes back to the museum tour analogy. There might be seemingly unrelated works of art near one another in close proximity with others. And you're like, I don't, I don't get why both of these paintings are in this room. <clears throat> but then you hear the tour guide help make the connections. So a line of caution or encouragement, just one verse, half of a verse that's found in another New Testament verse may get a whole chapter's worth of treatment in 1 Corinthians. And these are all, even though it's the first grade teacher <clears throat> saying, Now, Johnny, Susie, you listen to me. And she's telling all the stuff that's going on. We're getting information that is valuable to us. It's very important to church life to understand what's going on in Corinth. Fifth, the deeper we go into 1 Corinthians, the more it appears that the dominant factions in the church were comprised of the educated, the wealthy, the theologically sophisticated, the self-assured, and those gifted in rhetoric and, and debate. In other words, it's really kind of two sides that are forming here. One side, smart, they've got a side, and they... They've got influence and they're dominating the other side. And though Paul, in every right, could be easily over here, he's rebuking these guys for misusing the gifts that God has given him. They abused, in fact, the good gifts that God had given him. Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you act as though you did not? I used to share this verse every Friday night at campfire to teenagers. I mean, who, what did you do to be born into the family that you're born into? I mean, do you deserve those new tennis shoes that your family buys you every six months? Um, did you deserve to be born into a family where your parents teach you good hygiene? How do you, who gave you the looks that you have? That goes for all of us, doesn't it? What do we have that we did not receive? What do we have to be so proud of? These guys were shouting each other down because they thought they knew more and they were better than other people. 
Why do we act? Why do we boast as if we didn't receive the things that God has given to us? Well, it's because what we do, especially if we're legalist, if, and we're all legalist or recovering legalist. In other words, those who try to uh, affirm their own worthiness in this life, in this community, and before God by keeping a law. It's not the law that we keep, though, if we're legalist. It is a law that we create and fashion for ourselves. Uh, we compare ourselves with others, and unless we have serious identity issues, you know, I'm just a dish rag for Jesus, and we're that way all the time. Unless we have serious identity issues, we come out on top in, in, in our arguments. I'm thinking to myself, you know, okay, I've got some issues here, here, and here, but Rick Palmer, man, that guy really has issues, and I start comparing myself with him. I don't compare myself with, with, with Jim Taylor because Jim is a lot better than I am, but Rick, you know, you can do it subconsciously you want to. You know I'm not picking on Rick, but this is what we do, and we, don't even, and we do it subconsciously. We don't do it intentionally on purpose, you know. We're not, it's not like we're trying to put somebody down, but we've got to make ourselves acceptable if we're living by the law. And almost any good gift of God can be utilized as a weapon against others. How sad. Sixth, it also appears that even though Paul was highly educated and could hang with the best of them, he rebuked the more dominant groups for abusing the younger Christians. Think Weaker Christians. Last week's message dealt with all of this. Which amounted to sinning against Jesus. This is what we learned last week, last month, and what we'll see over and over at Corinth Community Church. The clever arguments that Paul used to rebuke these abusive believers. And, and that is not too strong a term for them. They were abusive Believers, the arguments that Paul used would likely not have been understood by everyone. But they were understood by the people that needed to hear what he was saying. And you know, life is kind of like that. We don't, none of us will ever understand everything there is to know about Scripture. But you know what? We will all understand if we're seeking the Lord. We'll all understand the things that we need to understand. So, when we're gifted with knowledge at high levels, we are called to trust God and obey God. But primarily, to trust, which leads to the last point in this list. The solution, Paul determined, was to constantly remind the Corinthians of the gospel. We preach Christ and Him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power, and he will say later, the, or say close to that point, the wisdom of God. Allison and I ran into a couple who are friends of ours this past week at a restaurant. We stood around talking for a long time, and 
my friend Steve told me he was um, in his retirement. He is coaching a, a volleyball team, a ninth grade volleyball team. <clears throat> and so naturally, I'm, I'm asking like, well, how do you, how does it go? He said, well, we've been pretty successful. And I said, what's the key to the success? He says, he says the very first practice, I tell the girls. There's not one mistake that you can't make on this court that I haven't made multiple times. Do not beat yourself up and constantly be down on yourself. No, learn from your mistakes, learn the techniques, and have fun. Just have fun doing what you're doing. I thought about how many times in the Christian life we focus on performance when it's not our performance that matters. It's what Jesus has done for us. I can never be good enough. Only he could be good enough. And oddly enough, when I focus on the law, when I focus on being good enough, I find that I tend to measure myself against others. Once again, I'm tempted to think critically of them so that I can feel better about myself and achieve the standard that my little legalistic heart has set for myself. The gospel is this. We can never be good enough. That's why Jesus came not only to live a perfect life, but to die as a perfect substitute for our sins. As believers, or any of those, our only hope of heaven. It's not to be more faithful in going to church or giving or any of those things, which they're all important, as we will see at the end. But our only hope is to repent of our sins or to acknowledge that we are sinners and have no hope of impressing God and to call out for Jesus who died for us, call out for him to save us. As believers, the cure for comparisons and for mistreating others, is to dwell on the cross. If we are to follow Jesus, we are called to live a cruciform or a Christ, a cross-centered life. Every Sunday when you're here and you see this cross behind the one who is preaching, ask the Lord to help you to take up your cross daily and follow him. That's what we're called to do. But you know what? It's hard to criticize others when you're carrying your cross. This is the context for 1 Corinthians 9, 1 to 18. And we're over halfway through the message before we even read the text. Now, I hope, though, that it will help us make sense of the passage as it is read. Typically, we stand for the reading of the, uh, of the word, but since we're this far into the message and since I'm going to make a few brief comments as we go about the text here and there, then just please remain seated. 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not a, an apostle, at least... I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. See what I'm talking about? This is complex. These rhetorical questions do not reflect the same level of defense that Paul will offer for his apostleship as we would find if we kept going in the the 2 Corinthians. Um, 
Paul, as, as, as he went along, some in Corinth tried to say he's not a legitimate apostle. But, but think about this. The apostle Paul was the one who lays out the gospel in the form that we know it. This is one of the problems with people who say, I'm just a red letter Christian. I follow the words of Jesus. No, what you do is you follow some of the words of Jesus that, set, that, that help your political or social cause. But you don't follow all the words of Jesus. But if this is the word of God, what's more important than anything else? It's all together what we say. I get that Jesus is God in the flesh. I get that his words are very important. And I would suggest that you never get too far from the gospels. But we don't understand the Gospels if Paul doesn't explain them to us. Paul and Peter and John, but especially Paul, explains the Gospel to us. This is what it means that Jesus died on the cross. This is what it means that he was raised from the dead. This is how it impacts us. This is how we are to live. Because we can't witness to everybody by saying the same thing Jesus did to the rich young ruler... Give away everything you have, sell everything you have, give it away, and follow Jesus. We, can, we don't witness like that. Well, how do we witness? Well, we're going to see next week how we're supposed to witness in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 9. So these rhetorical flesh and questions are not reflecting the same level of, of defense Paul will have to offer in 2 Corinthians. But remember this every time you see Paul defending his apostleship. To discredit Paul is to discredit the, the gospel. And if there is no Paul in God's sovereign plan, he would have had someone else. That's not the point. But if there's no Paul, there's no gospel. So, Paul here is simply pointing financially sense that he gave up his rights to be financially supported by the Corinthians when he served among them, even though, of all people, Paul would have been worthy of a salary from the Corinthians. Why? Later. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat meat that's been sold uh, in the marketplaces that was butchered at, at the temples? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? The brothers of the Lord he's talking about were James, the half-brothers of Jesus, James, Jude, Simeon. There's one more whose name escapes me right now. But they had wives. They, they traveled with their wives. Peter did. Or is it only, verse 6, Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? <clears throat> or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Cephas was another name for the apostle Peter. And <clears throat> in this text, Paul is pointing to the fact that Peter and the other Apostles who were married most likely traveled with their wives. And the women would offer um, ministry to the women where the apostle was going in an era where men and women were largely segregated. Men and women didn't worship together. Well, they, they, had, they were in different sections. We're going to see in Corinth that they were breaking a lot of social... Um, uh, sensibilities, and I just can't wait to get to the place where we talk about 
the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. I can't wait till we get to 1 Corinthians 11. Long hair, short hair. I love it. I I'm not excited at all, but it's, we got to do it, right? That's one of the advantages of preaching through a text. You don't get to skip the hard stuff. So, Paul and Barnabas forwent the beautiful gift of marriage so that they could focus more on ministry. And yes, Paul identified Barnabas as an apostle. You may think of the apostles as the 11 disciples who were left after Jesus' resurrection, plus the apostle Paul uh, and Matthias as well. But there were a handful of others that had seen Jesus both during his ministry and in his resurrected state, and they had been commissioned by Jesus to preach the gospel. So these men were identified as apostles. Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority or merely just thinking about humans? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So Paul is appealing to Old Testament laws and examples to make the case that he had the right to expect support. And then he continues, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put in an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the Old Testament system. You would bring your tithe to the store out to be more to the temple. You'd bring a tenth of your grain, a tenth of others. So it worked out to be more than a tenth. But it functioned not only as a tithe, but also as a tax, a tax in the Old Testament. You would end up bringing more than 10%. But government officials, temple officials, they all ate from... Uh, the, the gifts and offerings that God's people sent. But Paul is saying there's a pattern that is established here. And then in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the 12 and he sent out the 72 and he said, don't take any money. The laborer is worthy of his hire. The workman is worthy of his hire. They'll take care of you. Stay with people. They'll feed you. You just focus on the gospel. So all the patterns of Scripture point to the rightness of material and financial support for those who minister the word. But Paul gave up his rights to a salary for the sake of the gospel. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for personal boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, well, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So I know that we've already received a ton of information. But here are three more observations, applications that will hopefully tie it up together. And this won't take long to help us make sense of this text. Beginning with this. Paul's decision not to receive pay from the Corinthians had more to do with his commitment to not be used by one of the factions at Corinth Church than it did with establishing a pattern of bivocational pastors. And so... He deprived himself for the sake of the gospel. The reason that Paul refused to take money from the Corinthians was likely that it would have been that rich and wealthy faction that would have made Paul their patron. And and so they would have said, now look, we're supporting you. We expect you to be on our side when the debate is is held. Isn't that just the way of life? And Paul's like, no, no can't do that. I can't be beholden to you. So Paul worked a lot of extra hours to support himself so that the gospel would stay out of the political realm. Not only was Paul not making a case against full-time ministry compensation, but he, he was actually making a strong biblical case for paying the preacher. And by extension, as we see in the Old Testament at the temple service, those who serve in the temple. By extension, the youth pastor, worship pastor, administrator, and the light bill for the, the building. He made his case from individual verses and from patterns that God had established from the earliest days of days, which leads us to our second point. Speaking, speaking of patterns, the Bible speaks to us. <clears throat> From the text, from the context, and according to patterns in Scripture. And all of this teaching is meant to teach us the gospel. Do you remember when Scripture first came alive to you? You may have been saved when you were very young or you were maybe saved when you were much older. But do you remember when all of a sudden it seemed as if God was speaking directly to you? And in fact, he was speaking directly to you. As you grew in the Lord, though, you began to realize the importance of not only a verse, but also the context surrounding that verse. If you take a verse out of context, you can make it say almost anything you want, right? You can make scripture work for you. But if God is ruling your life, you don't want to do that. You want to know what he's saying. How many times do we hold on to our interpretations? Because, well, that's the way grandma taught me. Or this really serves my life and and my teaching well. And it's very difficult for me to admit that I've been wrong all those years. That's one of the reasons I do my best not to preach myself into a corner where I can't say, you know, I understand this better now. Here's what I think this text means. It's not easy to do that, but I'd far rather do that than just get stuck 
hanging on to a truth that is really not true. So there's the context. And while quoting verses is a good discipline for as long as you live, as you grow in your relationship with Christ, you'll begin to seek to understand how the Bible works. And once you understand, okay, this is Old Testament and this is new, but somehow this is one story with two parts, not two different stories. I see how all of this works. It's beginning to make sense. Well, then you'll begin to notice patterns and you'll begin to learn the ways of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal and used the skins to clothe the first humans. And Jesus died. He died on the cross, naked, bearing our shame, taking our sin upon himself. And one day, Bert and I had no idea we'd be using the same passage. One day at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will worship as redeemed people washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. It's all connected. One of the advantages of reading through Scripture every year is that you learn to see, wait a minute, Jesus is here in the Old Testament. You'll understand what Galatians 3.8 means when it says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. If you never read all the way through scripture, you'll never progress. And if you don't do it on a fairly consistent basis going through, well, I just like to take a small passage. Yes, that's, that's important. But if you don't get the big picture, you really don't know how that little passage fits with everything. And so if you never read through Scripture, you'll never progress to the point of recognizing your old patterns that are in Scripture. No matter what your age, if you're young or you're old, you are privileged to commit the rest of your life learning about this. And as I say from time to time, you might say to me, you know, I've read through the Bible three years in a row, and I, I just don't know that it's working for me. My response is going to be, get back to me in 20 years. You don't know. You don't know what's going on in your life until you are in there at that level. And you begin to understand these patterns. But you'll also not only see the patterns in Scripture, you'll begin to understand how God works through history. You'll begin to understand about people in history and the decisions, the mistakes, and the successes that they have. And you'll become much more aware of what the Lord is doing in our world today, confusing as it is. And when your life is full of pain or it's confusing, you will know enough to trust. Last. Let's talk about personal rights, and this is not going to be pretty. Our reward, though, is found in the cross of Jesus, and that is the heart of the gospel. I, look, I, I have to tell you, when I, when I came to this place, and I'm writing this list, and look, if, if there's a lot of lists going on, most likely it's because this is a complex passage, and I'm trying just in different ways for us. To get my own head around it. Really. I, I had no idea how to preach this text. And the Lord led me this way. But when, when I knew that I had to talk about personal rights. Because you can't avoid it in this text. You can't avoid that application. 
I'm like, I'm so unqualified. There were a lot of things that I gave up when I accepted Christ at 18 years old of, of age. And man, when you're 18 and you're on fire for the Lord, you'll give up anything. But the older we get, the more we seek ease and comfort. We're restricted. We have to take it easy at some levels because we just have to. We're older and we can't. But Paul endured hunger and beatings and sleepless nights and conflicts that he did not enjoy. And ultimately, he spent his last days before execution in the nastiest jail that you can possibly imagine. The Romans would cut a, a, a floor underneath the main floor. They'd cut into the stone and they had a hole that they would let people down into this hole. And they'd cram 30 people into a very small area. And it would, there are no restroom facilities. And it was on a floodplain. And when the, when the waters would come and the floods would rise, sometimes people would drown in that nasty, nasty water. And that's how Paul wrote 2 Timothy. He had the dick above his head, who was maybe six, six feet above his head, six or eight feet above his head. And he dictated to Luke, and he said, you know what? I'm alone. Only Luke is with me as he's writing to Timothy. And he knows this is going to be read to the church at Ephesus. He said, but I've, I've fought the good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. There is laid up for me a crown, a reward of rejoicing that is laid up for all who long for the Lord's appearing. When we have that as our hearts, and we're willing to give up some rights. So, having come to the Lord's table today, I'm going to list some rights that the Lord might call us to give up for the sake of the gospel. Man, this, my feet were hurting as I was putting this list together. If you're willing, perhaps just close your eyes and sense the Lord's good presence in your life as He's calling you maybe to give up certain things. He's not standing with arms folded and a scowl, really kind of the way that the Apostle Paul did. He, but, but even Paul was saying, hey, this is what I was willing to give up. You should imitate me. So the Lord's good presence may be calling you. The Lord may be calling you the right, give up the right to exercise my Christian freedom to partake of whatever I want or to watch whatever I want or to use whatever language I want. How about this one? The right to live in a climate-controlled environment every day of the year for the rest of my life. The right to speak my mind for what I consider to be the good of the church or the good of the culture activities. The right to participate in Sunday morning sports activities, even though church attendance is a priority for all believers. Or the right to go to the lake or just sleep in. The right to be married and have children. 
the right to spend my money on myself and my family instead of giving to the Lord's work and to others as the commands and patterns of Scripture clearly indicate I should. The right for my children to grow into the adults that I have raised them to be. The right to be respected, to be compensated, and to be treated fairly by others. This list could go on, but that, that's enough. Father, we confess that we are selfish. We're self-centered. We're self-focused. Everything about us, Lord, is for the good of self. And we are sometimes arrogant, maybe often. That's who we are without Christ. But in Christ, it's a different story. Paul is going to say later in this letter, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Lord, make us like Jesus, even though that we know such a prayer leads us to pick up our cross and follow you daily and also leads us to places where Jesus goes. And ultimately he went be crucified on the cross. We can't even die to ourselves without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In our lives, So Lord, we depend on you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul who sacrificed much for the sake of the gospel. Make us living sacrifices dedicated to worshiping and serving you and to the sharing of the gospel to all as we are going to see next week. In the name of the one who gave us all for us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.